honestly, first question to every other former church kid I meet. What was your favorite church song growing up? Oh, gosh. I mean, I was a Lord, your lift your name on high sort of traditionalist. Okay. You came from heaven to earth. I liked any song with hand movement. Anything where there was a, an accompanying sort of gesture that would go along with it, I was very into that. Now, how would y'all sing? Was it just like an acoustic guitar? Was it like a band? Were y'all rocking well, out? It depended. If it was a Sunday morning, like if the the adults were in the room, it was very traditional piano only. If if it was youth group, that's when things would get a little funkier with an acoustic guitar, or maybe a tambourine. So my guest um, today, as you heard, you he know, grew up keyboard, in church. But as he began to learn more about the faith, he also began to realize something about himself, that he's gay. Today, he tells us that story. From NPR, I'm Sam Sanders. You are listening to It's Been a Minute. So uh, for this episode, let me tell you right off the bat, we are not going to talk about a few things. We will not discuss this week's debate. We will not discuss the election. We will not discuss coronavirus or the economy. Because if you are like me, you've probably already heard enough about all those things already this week. So instead, this episode, we're going to celebrate a very special day. Coming out day is Sunday, October 11th. It is a day that means a lot to me. So in honor of it, this episode right now, a beautiful coming out story from a guest who grew up a church kid just like me, actor, writer, and comedian Joel Kim Booster. You might know Joel from his comedy specials. Yeah, I was adopted from South Korea. South Korea, for those of you, you might know this, uh, it was the only country in the 80s that would fly a baby to the U.S. You did not have to go and pick it up. So in many ways, it was like the Grubhub of babies, you know? They would just fly a baby straight to your door. No hassles, no fees. It was great. But um, yeah, so it was an interesting thing for me growing up with this face in an all-white family in an all-white town. Like, I fully knew I was gay before I knew I was Asian. Um, that's but we are not talking about Joel's career on the show today. In honor of coming out day this weekend, Joel is going to share his coming out story with us. How he came out to his family and his friends and his church, but most importantly, how he came out to himself. Listeners, heads up, there is a discussion of sex in my interview with Joel. Perhaps not the best interview for the kids. Okay, with that, here's Joel Kim Booster telling his story of coming out. Happy coming out day to everyone out there. Enjoy. My conception of sexuality was, like, forming when I was, like, so, so young. Like, I started jerking off when I was, like, six or seven. So, like, I was, like, hypersexual at a really young age. And, like, really, it didn't... The shame and everything that came after it, it was all so instinctual when I was, like, a young, young kid. And it was only when I started to hit, like, prepubescent 9, 10 that I started to connect the dots. And, like, this private thing that I thought I was the only person in the world who did became suddenly, you know, reflected in the POV of what we were learning in church and stuff like that about yeah. sexual mores and, and everything like that. I actually specifically, this memory will, like, always be stuck in my head is I, I was like watching a, an episode of 2020 about um, gay dads and my dad huh. was in the room and I remember my dad being like that's wrong and that being sort of like a very early sort of like cajole like uh, memory of learning the wrongness that like 
I had inside of me. And mm. that, yeah, so that will stick with me. Thank you, Barbara Walters. Listen, she's a, she's a font of endless yeah. stuff. How, how hard was the compartmentalization? Like, so, so you know you like guys. You know that's part of who you are, but you're also going mm-hmm. to a conservative church, and you know that your family and your church won't accept this. Like, it was it well, honestly was pretty easy for me to compartmentalize. Like as a kid, I was just like, okay, well, I I can't be gay right now. Figure like shut up, and like you just live that life. That I mean, that happened way later that I had to go through where for so long, sex and romantic sort of. Uh, affection were separated so completely for me. Like I didn't, it wasn't like, you know, I was, I had sexual feelings for men and then I realized it was wrong. And then I started to suppress that in favor of trying to make it work with women. It was more like I developed sexual feelings for men and then sort of apart from that through watching TV and movies and, you know, learning from society basically that mm-hmm. you know a man ends up with a woman romantically mm-hmm. developing that those sorts of fantasies like at, at the same time that i was like jerking off to scott bakula in quantum leap <laughs> drag i was like also fantasizing about like marrying a woman you know and i uh. think part of this too was easier because i was homeschooled for so long too so it was really easy to compartmentalize that stuff it wasn't until i was like 13 14 that and really started to understand the reality of like okay this isn't a phase this isn't going away like an understanding that sex and romantic love were sort of intertwined or supposed to be that i fully understood, you know, and and then started to compartmentalize and be like, okay, well, I can't address that. I can't deal with that. I can't do that. And just, you know, started to try and pray the gay away mm. on my own. Mm. What was that um, ideal hetero marriage that you thought about as a kid? What did that look like? Who was your wife? Uh, my wife was this girl named Alicia that I met at Bible camp. Oh, my goodness. But, yeah, so that was, like, the fantasy for a while was, like, I was going to get over this gay thing. I was going to beat it. That, you know, obviously did not happen. Yeah. What did beating it look like for you in your mind? I think it was, like, for me, I thought there was still, like, time to develop sexual feelings for women. Mm. Like, I really thought that, like, not necessarily that, like, the sexual feelings for men would dissipate but that eventually it would even out a little bit Mm. like if i if i looked at enough straight porn if i looked at enough like women or like you know and like what i now sort of (laughs) recognize as like diva worship almost you know that is is like i almost was able to convince myself that the way i idolized certain women growing up yeah is actually not (laughs) Yeah, it's not far away from, yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's not far from, like, sexual attraction. So I was like, if I, you know, I'm so into, um, this is, like, such a weird crush, but um, Jerry Ryan, who is low-key responsible, partway responsible for President Barack Obama, she was married to the senator that Barack Obama replaced because... In their divorce proceedings, it was revealed that he tried to take her to BDSM clubs. Oh, I and remember that. Yes, yes. She started seven of nine on Star Trek, and she and like that was like <laughs> that was like my early celebrity beard was Jerry Ryan. Um, <laughs> And I was like, oh, I'm so into her. I would like print pictures off 
the internet when we first got the internet and a printer. Like literally, and back then, it took a long time to print out a picture of anything. Yeah. Um, HP LaserJet situation. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And I, I really convinced myself that like me sort of standing this this woman and 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 women like her like Britney Spears and Beyonce and all of these people uh, was akin and could be akin to a romantic sort of feeling and i i just eventually thought that my penis would catch up coming up how joel left the church and found a new support system with the high school drama kids ah classic story Support for NPR and the following message come from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, family-owned and operated since 1980. As a second-generation owner and VP of the brewery, Brian Grossman says Sierra Nevada is more than just a business to him and his siblings. It's entirely intertwined with our childhood. It's been part of who we are. The brewery is much bigger than just a physical place that makes beer. It's much more than four walls and some kettles. There's the people really make it alive. The product itself is alive with fermentation. The alchemy is pretty magical when you look at what it takes to to put a bottle of beer out. So it it is hard to put words to the relationship that we have with the brewery and and even you know team members. It's it's much more. We're all pulled together for the common cause, and that common cause. Yes, most of the time it is beer. But it's that common cause of getting it right. It's that kinship of doing it right and getting it right. To learn more, go to SierraNevada.com. Please drink responsibly. I'm Rodney Carmichael. I'm Sydney Madden. And on our new podcast, Louder Than a Riot, we trace the collision of rhyme and punishment in America. We were hunted by police. We were literally physically hunted. You'd be standing on the corner, drug squad pull up, everybody will run. New from NPR Music. Listen to Louder Than a Riot. How did God play into all of this as you're going through this from being a kid up until hmm. you're, you know, coming out towards the end of high school? I are don't you know. thinking I about a- whether God likes it or not? Is that even an issue for you? Or are you just kind of like. I, for. I've always been a very research oriented person. And okay. I remember really thinking like the Bible was inspired, you know, the Holy Ghost uh, inspired these men to write the words of God. Mm -hmm. And that was something that I needed to believe and did believe. So for me, when I realized that being gay was like just not something that I could get rid of through prayer, I started doing research and, you know, thank God for the internet. Like I would go on forums for Christian teens and, and ask about, you know, like, is this a compatible lifestyle? And I, I stumbled actually on like really early scholarly work on sort of the translations of the New Testament and mm. sort of pairing that with historical context of the day and learning that, you know, the words that we've translated to just be homosexuality in, in the NIV is actually much more complicated because of historical context and what, you know, Paul and, and uh, was writing to the Corinthians actually about was not so cut and dry as like two men, two adult men having sex or two adult men in a loving relationship. It just wasn't. And, and I remember bringing this to a church leader and i remember Ooh, the church leader brave. telling me that this cuz it was it was written by a mom whose son was gay hmm. and who had 
come from a very similar faith background that I did. And this was, you know, sort of the research that she had done and uh, in, in conjunction with like actual scholars. And I remember emailing this to one of my church leaders, someone that I really trusted and believed in and, and I knew and I was friends with. And she, you know, she had just sort of graduated from Bible college herself. And so she was like in my age cohort. And I remember her emailing back and being like, you know, it's very clear that this mother loves her son. Mm. But she's wrong, mm. and um, and and what she's doing is really harmful, and that was it. There was no real explanation uh. for why she was wrong. If a teenager sends something like that to a youth pastor, it's also a kind of a cry for help. It's also you kind of saying, "I'm struggling with these things. Can you help me?" This is you trying yeah. to come out to her. Did she ever, in light of that email you sent, ask about how you were doing and if you were having thoughts and feelings around your no. sexuality? Well, here's the thing is, uh, you know, I'm a, I, I read as pretty gay, I think, to most people. I think there's like what? maybe a little no, bit of, there's, there's, uh, yeah, there's, uh, there's, there might have been some ambiguity back then because I was trying really hard, you uh-huh. know, I was like, but I think most of, at that point, what happened was, you know, I had made a gay friend at my high school and I had talked briefly about hanging out with that person. And I remember getting called into the office with all the church, the youth group leaders, my youth pastor, um, and being told that I had to either stop hanging out with this person or not come back to wow. the church. And I never went back. Um, How old were you then? I was 16 okay. then. Okay. And. It was a watershed moment for sure because for me, I knew which way I was headed and I knew that like it was just like a dam was about to burst and Mm. I couldn't really hold back and I was dealing with so many other things mentally at that point that I just like couldn't – I needed support and – I didn't, and I knew I wasn't going to get the support that I needed. Because especially like thinking back, this is like such a 2005, 2004, whatever year it was, mentality of just like playing chicken with me rather than if you'd you'd think now, I think a smarter church leader, even a smarter evangelical church leader would have said- We get like it. yeah, or like let's hold on to this kid, like let's like let's keep him in the fold, mm-hmm. let's keep him coming to church every week, and and at least that way you know we'll have access to him. But instead, they gave me this ultimatum that I think that they had expected me to adhere to, and I called their bluff and I said, uh. "Okay, I'm gone." And I called my dad. I had him pick me up, and we never went back to that youth group. It's funny hearing you say that because like. My church never gave me an ultimatum. They were maybe even a bit more strict than your church. They definitely knew that I was about to be a gay because they tried to pray it out of me a few times. Um, Mm. (laughs) But they never were like, you can't come back anymore. And I wonder, I don't know, which approach is best. Like, at least you knew when to cut things off. I think for many years... I was trying really hard to continue to be in a place where I knew I just didn't fit anymore. Well, I mean, it's easy for me to talk about this in hindsight, but at the time, you know, like I did stop going, but at, I was like fairly convinced I was going to hell, you know, like I, yeah. at that point it was like, I'm not going to beat this thing, which is like such a, an odd way of putting it, but that's how I thought about it at the time. I'm not going to beat this thing and I have no home here. So I might as well just like go crazy 
while I have the chance here on earth and then eventually I'll go to hell. And <laughs> oh, that's, no. and that's that on that, you know? Oh my goodness. It's so, I don't know. I want to just like find young Joel Kim Booster and give him a hug and be like, I'm sorry you had to go <laughs> through that. It sucks. Do you, I don't want to ask if you feel sorry for yourself, but I do want to ask looking back years from now, how do you feel about that? 16-year-old, 17-year-old kid and what he was going through. I mean, I, I'm, I'm looking at it now with... That was half a lifetime ago. Mm. And I'm so thankful that everything happened in the way that it has because I love my life now. And I don't know, you know, there are so many steps that, of course, like hurt um, to get there. I mean, mm. there is so much tumult with my family mm. before getting here and a lot of therapy to get me here. But, mm-hmm. like, ultimately... I'm glad that it had happened because it was certainly like emotionally ripping a Band-Aid off, but I don't know if there was a better way to do it in terms of where I was at at that point in my life. Yeah. I want to flash back to that moment in high school when everything starts to just happen. You're growing up in the church. You're being homeschooled. You have these aspirations to just, I don't know, become a youth pastor in adulthood. But then you end up asking your parents if you can go to public school to do drama club right to like do theater uh-huh. and they let you go to public school and then everything changes take me back to that everything like, changes first public school moment when everything just hits the fan i i it was standing in choir class behind a kid named esteban who was wearing axe body spray <laughs> and and like getting a boner and i believe he was like freshly out and like is like, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know. And like the excitement of that, of like standing next to an out gay kid who mm. was so hot to me at that point and like smelled so good. And like, he, you know, he didn't that. smell good. You know, he smelled bad because I don't Axe know. Body spray. Axe body spray. I, it's still something in me will react <laughs> to it. I think because of that moment. But wow. like, but for real, I mean, and that was that. And I think like, being surrounded by kids for the first time who were very open to it, who knew it about me before I even knew it about me, and who sort of, for the first time, I was around people who you know, were vocalizing the opposition, that were saying, like, no, gay is okay. And, like, you know, this is a pre-Glee era, certainly. I mean, kids are coming out left and right these days. But, like, I think I was one of like four or five out kids at my high school at the time. And so it felt revolutionary and it felt very, um, I don't know, empowering in a way and scary in another way. And, but I had a lot of, you know, I had that cliche drama click that was there to support me for the first time in my life. I had a support system that was going to stand behind me and, and make sure that I was okay. Coming up, Joel talks about losing his religion, but finding a few other things in the process. This message comes from NPR sponsor Allbirds, who makes shoes, socks, and undies that are not only comfy, but also carbon neutral. Their average carbon footprint per product is equal to running five dryer loads or driving 19 miles in a car before it's offset to zero. They measure these things because you can't reduce until you know what you produce. With Allbirds, feel confident knowing you're wearing a product that's doing right by your feet and the planet. Learn more about their sustainable practices and find your pair at allbirds.com today. Support for NPR and the following message come from Madewell. 
Their experts use premium fabric and the latest denim technology to make jeans in fits and styles for everyone. Whether you're looking for a super comfy pair that really moves with you or want to keep it old school in 100% cotton, you're sure to find jeans you're going to reach for again and again. Go to madewell.com and use the code NPRDENIM for $20 off your online jeans purchase. Terms apply. Please see madewell.com slash promos for full offer details. Billie Holiday helped shape American music with her voice and unique style. But her legacy extends way beyond music, with one song in particular. How Strange Fruit became an unexpected hit and brought on serious consequences for Billie Holiday. Listen now to the Throughline podcast, from NPR. How much of the way you were raised still shows up in like your sexual life now? I think for me, uh-huh. one of the biggest things was like, because you're growing up in this church background and you can never really show any of the same sex desire you have to anyone around you, you start to lead a life in which you're allowed to be gay, but secretly. And so all of your first experiences have to be an an incredibly big secret and then even when you realize you don't have to do that anymore your predisposition is keep it secret were there any lingering effects of your upbringing that you're still unpacking when it comes to just like the way you live out your sex life as a gay man no (laughs) good good (laughs) you got over it i uh i think that there are definitely some of the i i think like there's a frankness to the way that I see and approach sex that is a direct result of and a, maybe a direct reaction to the secretiveness of which it was sort of that that surrounded it while I was growing up. You know, it just wasn't something that we talked about. I I was never given any sort of sex ed. It was it was personal and private and I never understood why and I still don't understand why because it's just for I don't know. I I always felt it as a bodily function and I still view it that way and because then when I had it and I started having sex I was like this is the thing that's wrong this is the thing that we're not talking about it's a it's a fart you know like it's just like one of it's 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 something our body does and it it just it seems so silly to not um at least to me not to talk about I understand not everybody views it that way and I and I you know I never want to push that viewpoint on to overcorrect to be as uh, legalistic about it as my parents were in the opposite. but And I'm very curious. I mean, I'm still so curious about it to this day. I think a lot of my work is centered around that curiosity because so much of it I learned in practice and not in theory. And so it's fun to sort of be curious and, and sort of ask people like, well, how do you do it? And um, there's no right answer. And that's why it's a fun question for me to continually ask. Mm. ad nauseum one of the things that comes up a lot when i talk with people about god and sex whether they're straight or gay or whatever is that regardless of who you are when you grow up in a strict religious upbringing there's just this pressure in general to be relatively asexual you know mm-hmm. sex is not chased yeah chased and pure and like almost ignoring that humans are sexual beings yeah and i think a lot of people still kind of carry that with them in their adulthood, whether they stay in church or not, you seem to be totally over that. Do you think that was just the way you are? Or was there a thing or a moment or a process that got you there? Like this term, I I just think it was in me. I really do. Like I was like 
always, I was that kid in the middle of the living room floor, like humping his stuffed animal <laughs> as a child. You know, like I was like always, always, always like from the from the moment I realized what my penis could do, <laughs> I was like, this is a mir- this is miracle. This is like the greatest thing in the in the whole world. That like it can just do this, and it can just make you feel like this anytime you want it to. Really, uh, so yeah, I I don't know. It was like that was like the the first and the easiest thing for me to sort of let go of when I untangled myself from the church. Um, and I think that there are definitely like shades of you know. There's been a lot of like shading work in in therapy and and whatnot that I've done as an adult to make sure that I'm approaching sex in a healthy way, but like in terms of exploring it and viewing it as a gift, like that's how I've always seen it. And yeah, I, I've never wanted to hide my, my light under a bushel as it were uh, <laughs> a basket or whatever. Hide your junk under a bushel. No, uh, yeah, yeah, no, 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 not me for me. <laughs> um, do you ever imagine a time in your life here now, later, or you'd go back to church, go back to God, go back to some kind of religion or organized whatever? Um, I mean, I go to church every time I visit my friend, Sarah. Okay. Um, I do it out, I do it out of respect. Yes, I do it out of respect for her. Um, and there is a big part of me that, like, you know, I think I've always searched for community wherever I am because that is something that was, you know— sort of instilled in me in a very young age because of church. I definitely do that, but I, I found the community that I've been looking for, I think, in the gay community, and they stand in for what church used to stand in for for me. And church now becomes a dance floor or, you know, a warehouse party or a game night, you know? Mm. It can be all mm. of those things, um, just getting together with those with my community. Yeah. I know that you are... Um, agnostic now but if you had to look back over your journey with your sexuality and religious beliefs and say this was a lesson God was trying to teach me through this or this is a lesson for everyone else through this story what is the lesson the moral of the story hmm I mean I guess I wow that's a heavy question that's a heavy question. You really um, <laughs> knocked me over at the end here. I was doing so well. I was feeling so articulate. Uh, I guess the lesson for me is that the road is long mm. and you can't see. You know, I think like sometimes it's that optical illusion where you think you see the end of the road, but it's actually just a hill, you know? Mm. And once you're over it, there's a whole other stretch that you can't even see from where you're standing. And it's about perspective. And I think like it's really easy, even when things are hard, even when I'm going through and have gone through, I mean, right now is such a a great example of it. It feels like this is never ending Mm -hmm. and that I'll never leave my house again and I'll never get to dance with my friends again. Um, And I feel lonely and I feel, you know, uh, uh, unshakable sadness sometimes Mm -hmm. is that it's just when you can't see the end, it's just a hill. Mm. And you'll be and you'll have a whole other stretch. And then that stretch will, you know, bump and obscure itself as well. 
but it's mm. I'm somebody who always really, really wanted to know what the end game was, which I think is why Christianity was so comforting because it was like, well, I accepted Jesus in my heart, and so I, I know what heaven. the end game is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, no matter what, I know what the end game is. And I think having that stripped away from me was what really set me off balance for a lot of my, you know, later adolescence into young adulthood. And being okay with not being in control and not mm. knowing mm. has been, you know, the greater growth, I think, of my, uh, this, this period of my life. I love that. Life is a journey. The road is long. You'll never see all the hills and the turns, but keep driving. Yeah. But look at that. You got me in the heart space, Joel. This <laughs> <laughs> is the part where we end the interview. <laughs> Thanks again to Joel Kim Booster for sharing his coming out story with us. Coming out day is Sunday, October 11th. Enjoy it, everyone. All right, this week, It's Been a Minute was produced by Anjali Sastry, Janae West, and Andrea Gutierrez. Our intern is Star McCowan. Our fearless editor is Jordana Hochman. Our director of programming is Steve Nelson. Our big boss is NPR senior VP of programming, Anya Grundman. That's a wrap for this week. We're back in your feeds next week. Till then, be good to yourselves. I'm Sam Sanders. We'll talk soon.